The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. There's a law underpinning the very technology you're using to listen to my voice, Moore's Law. In 1965, Intel co-founder Gordon Moore made a simple prediction, that the number of transistors squeezed onto an integrated circuit would double every couple of years. He was right, of course, and with more components per circuit board came better performance and lower cost electronics. Moore's Law is the reason why you can store all the podcasts you want on your computer or phone for virtually nothing today. And if you charged your phone or your computer with solar, which I'm sure some of you have, you've just come across another guiding principle, Swanson's Law. According to that law, every time solar manufacturing capacity doubles, the cost of modules declines 20%. It too has held steady. And it's the reason why you can affordably charge your phone or computer with a solar electric system on your roof today. There's only one slight problem. The guy who Swanson's Law is named after he didn't actually invent it like people think. Well, it's uh, first off, it's a very strange thing to be attached to this concept because uh, in no way did I originate it. It goes way back. That is Dick Swanson, the founder of SunPower, and the reluctant namesake for Swanson's Law. He is an engineering and entrepreneurial icon in the American solar industry. Many consider him to be a founding father of modern solar. So in 2012, when some journalists heard Swanson talk about experience curves in photovoltaics, they thought it was his idea. And I guess it was the first time they had heard this. So they sort of naturally assumed that uh, uh, it was I that, that came up with it. Dick Swanson is responsible for a lot of technical innovations in solar. But he was just relaying what his colleagues had already identified, a learning curve that was evident in lots of other industries. Still, the name Swanson's Law stuck. And as soon as that appeared in print, I got calls from all my friends going, what is this? You know, it's actually quite embarrassing, I have to say. But we, we uh, really haven't been able to stamp it out. So uh, people tell me now to just sort of buck up and, and live with it. So have you just embraced it now? <laughs> I don't embrace it. I just don't fight it uh, every time it comes up. I, I don't feel compelled to fire off a, uh, you know, a tweet about it or something. I'm Stephen Lacey, and in this bonus episode of The Energy Gang, Dick Swanson and I talk about how far solar has come since the early days of the industry, and about what the coming decades will bring for the technology. Swanson may have given up on changing the law's name, but the law itself has held constant. As predicted, cost improvements in photovoltaics have closely mirrored improvements in computing, and that has opened up a whole new world for solar. Oh, yeah, and it's, it's really amazing. It's especially amazing because nobody knows why it works. It was first noticed in the production, uh, from what I've heard, in the production of uh, bombers in, during World War II. That uh, if, if, you know, I guess there were some mathematically inclined people around, and they started plotting the cost to assemble a bomber. Uh, on a log log plot versus the number of bombers and got a straight line. And uh, voila, uh, that 
has continued to, you know, that concept started to be applied to a lot of different things. Uh, you know, Robert Mar Margolis uh, did a nice thesis on this. Uh, he's now at DOE. And uh, if you sort of plot a histogram of the uh, uh, experience factor, which is how much product costs after you've doubled the cumulative volume uh, compared before you doubled it, uh, this histogram all clusters around 0.8, or in other words, a 20% reduction every time you double it. And, it. and it applies to, you know, almost all manufacturing industries, you know, pencils, wash machines, you name it. Uh, and so that, that is one thing that kind of gave us in the uh, PV industry heart, if you will, was, well, if we keep doubling this, eventually we're going to get there. And... Uh, and what also gave us heart is, and what Robert Margolis showed in his thesis, is that there's one industry where the costs actually go up every time you double the amount of cumulative uh, units, and that was the energy industry. So it was sort of like best of all possible worlds. Our costs are coming down as we get experience, and our competitors' costs are going up. You're talking about the stuff that we get out of the ground. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, uh, you know, it's actually their costs are now getting very close. I mean, they're, they're in the, ready to start uh, crossing over, if you will. So uh, I think every time those of us who were talking about these things back then talked about it, we, it was more of a hope and a prayer, you know, <laughs> that it would actually apply to the PV industry, uh, you know, through orders of magnitude of, uh, of cost reduction. And, and I think, you know, frankly, we were all pleasantly surprised, but nevertheless a bit surprised that, yeah, it worked. Looking back now, solar seems like a pretty good bet, but when you started out your career, um, solar cells were, you know, used mostly for space applications, and we needed to see the technology drop roughly in, by 200-fold do you look back and wonder what the heck you were thinking, even though there were these projected experience curves and other industries to learn from? Did you look back and say, what were we thinking? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't look back and say, what were we thinking? Uh, I knew what we were thinking, and, and that is that the conventional wafered silicon solar cell was basically um, constitutionally incapable of these kind of cost reductions. And therefore, one needed to look at another avenue, hope for some kind of breakthrough. I think it's one of the big surprises, certainly, within the sector is that that old conventional wafered silicon approach ended up dominating. In, in 1975, that idea would, was practically heresy. It was assumed, I would say, within the industry that it would either be a thin film approach that enabled the cost-effective generation of power or a concentrator approach. The integrated circuit industry was based on silicon, silicon chips, and uh, it was, however, an expensive process at the time. Uh, silicon was purified to basically be the most pure substance that man has ever made as part of the chip industry's efforts. Are you saying basically that like solar might not exist in its form today if it weren't for 
those early innovations in the chip industry? I'm sure of that, yes. Uh, and, and in fact, um, the equipment used to make the solar cells was all borrowed from the chip industry. And the chip industry had perfected not only the purification of the silicon that I just talked about, but then it had to be grown into a crystal, a single crystal, uh, which was done by melting it in a crucible and pulling a, a, uh, putting a seed crystal in there and pulling it out and, and making a large crystal. Uh, all this at a very high temperature. Um, and that is a difficult process of which the chip industry uh, worked for many years and continuously perfected. And uh, so there was that. And then once you got the crystal, you had to saw it into wafers. And the chip industry had perfected methods for sawing out wafers from these crystalline ingots uh, that, that worked be, uh, because, I mean, it was a difficult task because silicon is a very hard material, very brittle and very hard material. And, uh, and so they used diamond saws to uh, saw this out. And so that was all perfected. And then the methods for diffusing the dopants in and cleaning the wafers and making electrical contacts, all of that came from the chip industry. Uh, we just borrowed it lock, stock, and barrel. In fact, you could make solar cells in a standard integrated circuit facility. And that's what we did when I was at Stanford. Stanford had a uh, integrated circuit R&D fab for doing research and training. So we just used that facility to make, make our solar cells. So it's hard to, it's just hard to feature the industry today without that tremendous groundwork that was, uh, and technology momentum in how to deal with silicon that was developed within the chip industry. So silicon-based technologies are what dominate today. They'll likely dominate over the next decade or two. Why did people in the early days think that um, non-silicon-based technologies or concentrators that improved the efficiency of cells were the way to go? It's simply because while you could make a solar cell this way, it was vastly too expensive. Uh, and if you looked at the process from a sort of engineer's perspective and said, okay, I've got to take a factor of 200 out of this uh, every step along the way, you know, you, you would just sort of boggle your mind uh, and you would uh, have gone back to making chips. <laughs> and so uh, the, the, the way, the path forward in how to do that was so distant and difficult that it stumped everybody. It stumped, I shouldn't say it stumped everybody. There were a handful of sort of intrepid entrepreneurs that looked at this and said, you know, maybe I can't get a factor of 200 out, but I can get a lot of cost out because uh, the, the cells that were then being made for satellite operations were done on a very small scale, sort of a handmade uh, type of uh, product, if you will, uh, to very tight specs uh, for the space industry because once you put the satellite up there, you know, you can't swap the cells out really. And, <clears throat> and said, we can, we can pull cost out of this, um, you know, maybe a factor of 10 
if we really get to work on this. Of course, that was still too expensive for large-scale deployment, but they realized that there were small markets where uh, this was very natural. And by small markets, I mean applications where that were not near a grid where you could just plug in the, a plug into the wall socket, but off somewhere in typical applications that began to be developed were things like uh, uh, mountaintop repeater uh, power supplies for, uh, for phone microwave transmission and uh, charging batteries in uh, uh, Coast Guard buoys. Another one that came up was supplying power for oil, offshore oil platforms, um, and which, which require a fair amount of power. And that's one of the things that got the oil companies intrigued with, with solar was that they had a ready application to power these, uh, these oil drilling platforms that were miles off offshore. I've heard that uh, off-grid marijuana growing operations in California was sort of a, a black market for this, the early solar industry. Is that is that true? Is that a growth market for solar providers? I say nothing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually it is. It, it, it's kind of in the lore of the industry and, and uh, we kind of like that, that the industry had that sort of uh, rough and ready roots. Uh, Bill Yerkes, who started one of the early companies that I just mentioned that made crystal and solar cells, talks about how uh, after he put them on the market, uh, guys with trucks would come and, and fill up their pickup trucks with modules, pay cash. And they were from places like Humboldt County. So it didn't take a lot of uh, uh, you know, putting two and two together to figure out uh, what was going on there. But it wasn't just marijuana growers. I mean, they may have been 90% of it at one point. But it was people with cabins in the woods that wanted to uh, have some lights in their cabin. It was uh, people in the developing world. So the developing world uh, with, with lighting systems was one of the first real markets, I, I would say. And, and it's still, uh, despite the fact that it, it's dwarfed by the you know, the grid-connected market in the developed world, it's still really making an impact in, in the developing world. This seems like an appropriate place to break the show and mention our sponsor. You know our sponsor. It's Solar Edge, And they, of course, are really into the smart home. Because solar PV systems are not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They have brains now. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smarter. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a dumb solar module. It's an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring systems, and now also batteries and home load management devices. The secret to adding all this intelligence is the inverter. On the horizon is a future where the smart Solar Edge inverter controls the smart home in full, connected to the grid and to the cloud, that controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances in concert. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, visit SolarEdge.com. Back to the interview. You know, you've gone through a lot of evolutions as a company. Can you explain for people what makes SunPower uh, solar cells and modules different from others on the market? Well, that's an interesting question, Stephen. We, we 
historically came at this market from a different path than almost everyone else. We, we came at it from trying to make concentrator cells. And um, th this was one of the, as I mentioned early on, thin films and concentrators were sort of the two paths that were being pursued in parallel. We came at making high efficiency solar cells that were fairly expensive and we didn't worry about the expense so much because we were going to concentrate sunlight on them. In a concentrator, efficiency is, is one of the main drivers for the solar cell because you have to get enough energy out of this thing to pay for the lens and the tracking. They usually have to track the sun and, and all of that sort of thing. So efficiency was a focus, and it was a natural at, at, in a university environment also to focus on efficiency. So when we started SunPower, we had very expensive but very efficient solar cells. The other aspects of the industry that sort of evolved out of the three uh, uh, wafered silicon plus the Japanese companies had come at it from a very low cost point of view, trying to just make a low cost solar cell and see how much efficiency it would give. And, uh, and <clears throat> so we were a bit unique in that. Our objective or, uh, was to bring the cost down without sacrificing too much efficiency, and everybody else was working on how to get the efficiency up without adding too much cost. So you can see how we kind of came at this from, from different angles. Certainly, when we first started selling our flat plate modules that were much more efficient than the competition at that time, um, it turned out to be a huge advantage for sun power. I think if we had if we had given up on concentrators and simply said we're going to make generic solar cells like everybody else's solar cells uh, as a new entrant at that point it would have been very you know we probably wouldn't have survived but we had a high efficiency product so it, it allowed us to, uh, to to position ourselves a little bit differently than the sort of what now we would call a generic uh, solar cell. It proved to be harder to make high efficiency cells in volume production than a lot of people thought. Uh, there were some serious efforts at bringing out a high efficiency silicon cell, uh, you know, the Q-Cells Quebec process and uh, the Sun SunTech uh, uh, semiconductor grid process and, and a whole bunch of others that didn't really work out. and. The thing, the other major thing that allowed SunPower to move into this domain is that um, we merged, were purchased by Cypress Semiconductor, uh, which was a chip maker. They ported over all of their chip making expertise in, in how you do high volume wafer processing, which is really what making a solar cell is, uh, and, and helped us dramatically to figure out how to make a robust manufacturing processes. So that was a, a huge advantage that wasn't really, outside of a few companies like Sharp, uh, wasn't really available to most of the, um, of the solar cell manufacturers, just as evidence of how long it took them to get high efficiency products uh, into production. It, it proved to be harder than, uh, than they expected, but uh, of course, capitalism works over time, and, and they're definitely uh, figuring it out. And you've gone through a lot of iterations. Or when you were at SunPower, the company went through a lot of iterations. You were selling um, 
solar to f for airplanes you are using these niche uh, cells for Honda's solar car you're making infrared data devices you're developing a lot of products with pretty niche applications at the time uh, and and the company went through so many different evolutions talk about how you eventually got out of those niche applications and and made you know got into high volume manufacturing and found some VCs to write you checks <laughs> well uh, we found VCs to write us checks when we were promising to do concentrator systems in 1990 about uh, and uh, it wasn't too long after that that I realized that concentrators were probably a long time in coming, that it was going to take many more dollars than I expected uh, to commercialize concentrators. And, uh, but fortunately, they, uh, you know, they took it with a grain of salt and stuck with us. And uh, uh, instead of just blowing up the company, um, we uh, considered after coming to this realization that maybe we should actually give the money back and say the plan won't work. And I've, I've since heard of entrepreneurs doing that, but um, we didn't. <laughs> we, we kept the money and said, we're going to figure something out. Uh, and uh, so they ended up being very supportive of, of the company over the years. We, we uh, you know, it, it was the first round, as I mentioned, was around 1990. Uh, it wasn't until uh, after 2000 that Cyprus came in. And so 10 years is a long time for a VC to stay, uh, stay on board and, and be supportive. Uh, they certainly um, helped us through all the ups and downs and uh, got tired of an open checkbook and writing us checks. So we, we started looking for funding uh, in a big way uh, to finally push it over the hill uh, in, in the late 90s. This is after we had made the Honda car cells and the airplane cells, which had given us uh, some experience in making high efficiency cells. That was sort of the, one of the uh, stepping stones in, in developing you know, lots of experience in how to make these things was, was those projects. So they were, they were key, but the financial community in the late 90s had no interest whatsoever in, uh, in photovoltaics and we, we just couldn't get traction. You know, they would look at us and say, we love your team. Why don't you get into fiber optics? <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. That's what we're funding right now. Uh, so we kept plugging away, and um, NASA, the, uh, who had been the ultimate customer for the airplane cells, uh, asked us to put together an R&D program to see if we could bring the cost of our airplane cells down. I mean, so these were very expensive cells. We were selling them for about $200 a watt, but they were the highest performance cells you could buy at the time, and they were very light, and they were just just the raspberries for solar-powered airplanes. So uh, we put together a, a team with the objective of taking the 200 down to $60 a watt. And it was during that time we actually built our first large-scale factory model by that I mean a, an Excel spreadsheet that would actually try and compute how much it would take to make these cells. Much to our surprise, uh, 
we started seeing the cost projections. If, if we were to build a factory and everything were to work the way we expected it and hoped it would, um, that would allow us to compete with the existing, um, existing solar companies. And another thing that happened in that period was that uh, earlier, all of the solar companies were, were losing money, losing lots of money. But when we started looking at making the cells and realizing the value of efficiency that for the same wafer cost we would get more power, you know, same amount of module, glass, etc. we would get more power, and started doing the numbers, if we were to have a big enough production factory to sort of amortize all the fixed costs of engineering staff and that sort of thing, uh, it looked like it would work. And uh, so we had gone out trying to raise funds along these lines and, and the invest, we hired investment banking firms to try and find us investors and it just wasn't going anywhere. Uh, but that's when, um, by chance, I happened to talk to uh, the CEO of Cyprus, T.J. Rogers, and uh, he really took a liking to it. And, uh, you know, I think it was a perfect marriage because um, not only did they bring a tremendous amount of manufacturing experience to bear on helping us build this product, uh, we borrowed a huge numbers of their engineers and manufacturing people, for example, um, which a traditional financial investor would not have been able to help us with. Uh, he he thought he, it was a great idea, but his board didn't at the time, right? He had to <laughs> right, right, convince yeah. them a couple of times. He did, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, and in fact, um, he presented this idea to the board the first time, and he, he was the kind of person that wasn't particularly used to having people saying no to him. And uh, they, they basically said no. You're a wacko, TJ. We're not no way. Uh, that's a crazy idea. And so he kind of refined it. You know, we worked together to help refine the message. He went back, did it a second time, and they said the same thing. And so then he went into high gear. And uh, it's one of the great joys of my, my career was watching TJ go into high gear to convince his board. And uh, he, at the next board meeting, so now this is three quarters away, at the next board meeting, uh, he put on a show that was that was unbelievable. He had uh, big solar modules all behind him uh, as backdrop, and uh, he had a scale there which he weighed a Cypress uh, wafer on that was a you know making a chip wafer, and he uh, weighed the wafer, and uh, you know it was like a troy ounce, and uh, the weight, and then he asked. Uh, the marketing guy during the board meeting, how much do we sell that wafer for? And uh, the marketing guy said, oh, about $800. And he said, that's what we do. We turn silicon into gold, you know, and he just was going, <laughs> going on like this and, uh, and how, how silicon solar was going to be the next, uh, next big application, you know. Just, and by the time he was done, he went two hours on this believe it or not, uh, it was hardly a dry eye in the boardroom and uh, was sort of like, uh, okay, TJ, if you really want your solar company, <laughs> you can have it. Sounds stupid to us, but go ahead. And uh, so that's how, how, and then he turned around and uh, wrote us a check for $150 million to build a factory. So he supplied not only the capital to build a factory, and this is at a time when a VC or financial investor probably would have put in a maximum of 10 
this is pre the big explosion in the industry, in the sector. But uh, uh, so he gave us enough money to build a factory. He gave us enough people to figure out how to run the factory, and uh, set us loose. So that was wonderfully fortunate. I, I mean, you know, I can say that without that, we wouldn't be here. A lot of companies have crashed and burned over the years, not just at the early ones, but as we're speaking, there are a number of high-profile companies in solar, in renewables that are really hurting. And it's just still such a tough business to be in. The opportunities are really immense for companies to become the next you know, mega energy companies, like, like the oil companies, to, to really eventually grow a market capitalization that is equal to some of the biggest oil companies. But the path to getting there is so difficult uh, and fraught with risk. How would you describe what it takes to succeed in such a difficult market? It is a tough business. Um, you have to really want to do it. Uh, the margins are, are slim and it's very capital intensive, so it, so, you know, it soaks up a lot of investment capital to build capacity, build power plants. The whole value chain, starting with polysilicon refining, is, is capital intensive. Uh, so it's, it requires a lot of thought and hard work and dedication. It was, you know, that was one of the factors, those, those things I just mentioned were one of the factors that drove us to uh, merge with Powerlight. Powerlight was a system integrator. We was actually the largest system integrator at the time, and uh, we decided to merge the companies uh, so that we would have more of the value chain starting, you know, with, with making the solar cells all the way through to installing power plants. And that, that proved to be a godsend because what you, what you have in these kind of industries is that the, where the margin is, uh, or the profit, if you will, tends to move around. And, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be uh, for a while it was in the modules, for a while it was in the polysilicon refining. Uh, we, we went through a period where just getting polysilicon, uh, because the, the industry had grown so fast it used up the world's capacity, uh, was, was very ex uh, expensive, and the polysilicon refining companies were having a field day. Over time, uh, that attracted a lot of new entrants, and uh, today they're not having a field day. You know, I don't think you'd go out and start a polysilicon refining company today. Uh, uh, but the margin moves around, and, and it's been downstream a while. It's been in the modules, you know, and, and so um, this little elusive margin thing that's sort of running around, you have to keep your eye on it and understand it and maneuver accordingly uh, so that you can keep the whole, all the gears turning in, in the whole thing. Do you think that we will see a solar super major that is the equivalent of the oil companies that we know so well? Well, probably. I mean, it's Or will a, it be an oil company? Well, it could well be. I mean, as, as you know, you, many of your uh, listeners probably know, the French oil company Total owns sixty-six percent of SunPower today, so they, they certainly have an interest in this uh, this whole transition. Uh, 
they recently purchased a large battery company uh, also. So you can see where their thinking is, is going. But, um, you know, the, the super majors in oil, um, it, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, there was a period where the oil industry was, was being squeezed very hard and they went through a lot of mergers, you know, came out with the, the super majors at the end. Uh, but this is in a you know, this is in a very mature industry. So if, if it were to play out like the oil industry, uh, you know, it, in the early days of the oil industry, there were tons of oil companies, um, a lot of wildcatter type almost, and, and uh, smaller oil companies, regional oil companies. Uh, and that's kind of where we are probably today in the photovoltaics uh, industry. And There'll be transitions too. Uh, you know, we've we've gone through a, a a transition in the industry where vertical integration has become um, common. Uh, module makers are buying integrators, and integrators are buying module makers, and uh, that uh, sort of vertical integration uh, is also fairly common in the early days of an industry. Uh, you know, you, you for example take automotive industry. Ford in the early days refined its own steel, uh, you know, made its own glass, uh, etc. And uh, over time, it becomes as the industry matures, it becomes more economically favorable to then horizontally integrate. So uh, you have Libyon's Ford glass, you know, that makes glass for a lot of people uh, because of this scale that they can attain is um, is larger by making glass for more than just for Ford Motor Company. And their costs therefore come down as a result. And I think it's possible that that will happen also in the, in the uh, solar industry. We may see uh, a, a transition to horizontal integration with large module makers, uh, which are distinct from large uh, uh, system installers, uh, if you will. Uh, the same thing happened in the, my old industry, the chip industry, when, when uh, you started in in the early days of the industry. People made their own silicon ingots, uh, and they made everything in in the whole value chain, pretty much. Uh, and then along came a company called Siltec, which was actually here in Silicon Valley, that uh, said, "Gee, maybe we can make make a company around just making wafers for the chip industry." And the, and Motorola. You don't have to make your own wafers anymore, or Fairchild. You don't have to make your own wafers, or TI, or IBM. All those folks made their own wafers, and uh, started supplying wafers to everybody, and that proved to be the valuable paradigm there. Uh, so, and then, and then we, you know, if you fast forward to the present, the chip industry has coalesced into foundries, of which there's only a handful in the world anymore that essentially do all the processing uh, of silicon chips, and. Uh, and the old chip industries, uh, with the exception of a few like Intel, uh, are basically design houses. So I think my gut tells me that that transition to horizontal integration will happen sometime. Um, you know, you just don't know when. Do you think people realize how big the industry is getting? No, no, no. <laughs> In fact, um, I think most people, and, and in particular most uh, policy people and most politicians uh, who sort of uh, 
tune into this every now and then, um, were caught massively by surprise, you know, and, and how big it did turn out to be. And, uh, you know, when, because uh, we would constantly face from uh, this flack uh, as, as solar started to grow, well, you know, it's nice, but, you know, you're, you're 0.01% of the energy, and so it's insignificant, and you're a pipe dream, and it's never going to amount to anything. And what, what happened is kind of interesting in the sense that uh, the, the power of compound growth is so uh, strong that, yes, it's true we're 0.01%, but we're uh, doubling every year or every two years back then. Uh, so after uh, four years, that's a factor of four, and after eight years, it's a factor of eight. So uh, about 10 years is about a decade. So 10 years later, that 0.01 becomes 0.1, and then another 10 years, that 0.1 becomes one, which is where we are today. Uh, and that happens so dramatically that it just catches people by surprise. Uh, I mean, you can, you, you and your podcast cite all these things all the time, and Green Tech covers them. It's like uh, uh, last year, total investment in new renewables capacity is greater than all other energy sources, or all other electric sources. Yeah, it's not, it's not the dominant one yet, but it's the dominant new one. Uh, so the modules are okay now. They'll get better. The batteries are a factor of two or so expensive. That'll, they'll make that. And the renewable fuels are maybe four times too expensive, but we'll do that in time to make this transition. Thanks to Dick Swanson for his time, and uh, thank you for listening. That's it for our bonus episode of The Energy Gang. We're going to take one more week off, and then we'll be back uh, on the week of August 23rd. So enjoy your summer. Make sure to uh, rate us or send us a review on iTunes. Thank you to everyone who's done that. You're wonderful. And you can download us on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher Radio and any app of your choice. So if you aren't already subscribed, make sure to subscribe to us. Thanks very much for listening. For The Energy Gang, I'm Stephen Lacey. We'll catch you next time.